Hello! Hello! And welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. I'm Eddie Hurst, and soon we'll be listening to War of the Worlds because this is the premise of the podcast. Each episode, we take a chapter of H.G. Wells' seminal sci-fi novel, throw in a few jokes, some deep dives of extra information, and some comedy songs. Sometimes we have some personal comedy friends on and some bona fide experts in their field to add a little bit of colour to the tale of Martians invading the 75-mile radius area of London and Woking. But this chapter, it's just me, baby! Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 3. It's a bit of a shorter one, but don't worry. I've made up for it with some deep dives on colonialism. What else would you expect? You're welcome, guys. So, we're trapped in a scullery with the narrator and with the curate. Uh, we've been there since chapter one this time. There's a lot of peephole action, so be sure to keep your ear out, because there might be a song this time about it. There's a song this time about it. If this is the first episode that you're listening to, thank you, welcome, come along, but really, you should be going back to the very start. It's a novel, there's a linear narrative, that's how this works. If you're returning guest, thank you for making this your choice of audio escapism. Uh, in which case, I would urge you, if you haven't already, to subscribe, like, rate, share, just let people know about the the podcast please look nobody wants to keep banging on about it but the more people know the more people listen and that's fantastic for the podcast so what can i say forgive me for wanting success but please you know if you do if you can review it that'll be really helpful uh, you can do that on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcast except for spotify frustratingly so if you're on spotify listening to this thank you but go 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 review it somewhere else it'll take a few minutes makes all the difference to the podcast is there anything else to say oh hey if you want to see me live and you're in london the big old smoke uh, the very place where the martians will be invading i'm going to be there as part of the musical comedy awards on the 18th of september 3 till 5 p.m at phoenix arts club so come on down please support me uh, if you sign up to their mailing list you get a five pound ticket rather than an eight pound one and huge davis who i bloody love is headlining it as well so what a treat me and huge hello he- hello hello right anyway enough about that uh, follow me on twitter at eddie Hurst, Instagram the same, Facebook.com forward slash Eddie Hurst. Uh, send us an email, Eddiehurst at Gmail if you want. Let's get into it. Here we go. Chapter 3 The Days of Imprisonment. Alright, so just before we actually dive into it, uh, we know where we are in terms of what's been going on. They've been trapped in a in a little scullery, haven't they? Now, what I picture in my head for this is very much the set from bottom. That's what I think this is. We've got two lads who are losing their minds in a sort of abyss. Now, for any listeners who aren't from the UK, uh, Bottom was a sitcom in the 90s starring Rick Mayle and Adrian Edmondson. Adrian Edmondson, Aid Edmondson, or Adrian, why not? Give him his full name, sure. Do, do, what, you, do what you want. Anyway, uh, and it, it's like they're sort of in this divish, terrible flat, and it's very bleak. Uh, and that's just kind of, you know, I think this is a bit of a, I like to think of the curator and the narrator as like an, an odd couple kind of thing. I think you could make a decent sitcom out of this. I think you could, it's a decent setup for a sitcom that they can't leave the room. It's like, it's either a Beckett play or a sitcom, which is bottom. That's bottom in a nutshell. Total power. The arrival of a second fighting machine drove us from our peephole into the scullery. For we feared that, from his elevation, the Martian might see down upon us behind our barrier. At a later date, we began to feel less danger of their eye, for to an eye in the dazzle of the sunlight outside, our refuge must have been a blank blackness, but at the slightest suggestion of approach, drove us into the scullery in heart-throbbing retreat. Yet terrible as was the danger we incurred, the attraction of peeping was for both of us irresistible. I mean, this is ticking even more boxes for naughty boys trapped in a room, innit? I just, like, 
peephole. There must be like a spy hole. A spy hole is a better, better name. Peephole? Come on. It's a bit cheeky, isn't it? I think it's a bit too cheeky for people who are using it to see whether Martians are going to steal them and suck their blood out. That's just my opinion anyway. And I recall now with a sort of wonder that, in spite of the infinite danger in which we were between starvation and a still more terrible death, we could yet struggle bitterly for that horrible privilege of sight. We would race across the kitchen in a grotesque way between eagerness and the dread of making a noise and strike each other and thrust and kick within a few inches of exposure. Move on, trying to peep at the Martian. Get off me, get up. I will kick you into nectar. The fact is that we had absolutely incompatible dispositions and habits of thought and action. And our danger and isolation only accentuated the incompatibility. I mean, if he's only figured this out now, he's really taking his sweet time about it. Like, he's been nagging about the curate all book, and now he's finally been like, you know what, I don't actually think we get along. At Halliford, I had already come to hate the curate's trick of helpless exclamation. His stupid rigidity of mind. His endless muttering monologue vitiated every effort I made to think out a line of action, and drove me at times, first pent up and intensified, almost to the verge of craziness. I mean, verge of craziness 100% sounds like a royalty-free version of Edge of Glory by Lady Gaga, doesn't it? it sounds like a rip-off track of that, so, I mean, here we go now, you know what that means. He was as lacking in restraint as a silly woman. Oh no, that's, that's not, that's not alright. He would weep for hours together, and I verily believe that to the very end this spoilt child of life thought his weak tears in some way efficacious, and I would sit in the darkness, unable to keep my mind off him by reason of his importunities. He ate more than I did. And it was in vain I pointed out that our only chance of life was to stop in the house until the Martians had done with their pit. That in that long patience, a time might presently come when we should need food. He ate and drank impulsively in heavy meals at long intervals. He slept little. He hates him, but he can't leave him. It's... Are these guys, uh... Are these guys married? <laughs> are they married? Good. Hello? Anyone? Married? Mar Listen... As the days wore on, his utter carelessness of any consideration so intensified our distress and danger that I had, much as I loathed doing it, to resort to threats, and at last to blows. Stop it! That brought him to reason for a time. But he was one of those weak creatures, void of pride, timorous, anemic, hateful souls, full of shifty cunning, who face neither God nor man, who face not even themselves. I mean, don't mince your words, mate. Just say how you feel. Whew, brutal. 
it is disagreeable for me to recall and write these things, but I set them down that my story may lack nothing. Those who have escaped the dark and terrible aspects of life will find my brutality, my flash of rage in our final tragedy, easy enough to blame, for they know what is wrong as well as any, but not what is possible to tortured men. But those who have been under the shadow, who have gone down at last to elemental things, will have a wider charity. And while within we fought out our dark, dim contest of whispers, snatched food and drink, and gripped hands and blows, without, in the pitiless sunlight of that terrible June, was the strange wonder, the unfamiliar of the unfamiliar routine of Martians in the pit. Let me return to those first new experiences of mine. After a long time, I ventured back to the peephole, to find that the newcomers had been reinforced by occupants of no fewer than three of the fighting machines. Hey, you've been looking through the peephole for about like three hours now, so maybe I could just squeeze past and have a little, a little look too? Babe, I know you wanna see. This ain't no fantasy. You wanna get an eyeful, a frontal view of honesty. Try to pod your way in, but I won't let it be. You don't get the gift of sight, unless you promise me. To make a pact with the devil, to make a deal with your aunt, to make a bargain with your maker, to go under a trance. certain fresh appliances that stood in an orderly manner about the cylinder. The second handling machine was now completed, and was busied in serving one of the novel contrivances the big machine had brought. This was a body replacing a milk can in its general form, above which oscillated a pear-shaped receptacle, and from which a stream of white powder flowed into a circular basin below. The oscillatory motion was imparted to this by one tentacle of the handling machine. With two spatulate hands, the handling machine was digging out and flinging masses of clay into the pear-shaped receptacle above, while with another arm it periodically opened a door and removed rusty and blackened clinkers from the middle part of the machine. Hey up, 
it's me, the explaining lad. Now, I've got a few things I want to get off my chest. Things have changed and I don't like it. I want it to be how I remembered it, which is half-remembered and unrealistically optimistic and bigoted. That's right, I've turned into one of them now that I'm a little bit older. Maybe it's a stereotype, but I've got to do something with my age. This is like my third, fourth cycle. I don't know how many times it's happened. Anyway, clinker. A clinker, it's a sort of hot rock that comes out of a processing of minerals and, and, and stone and things. So whatever they're doing here, it's like an industrial uh, method and that's what they're getting out. So they want to remove them so it doesn't damage the machines. Another steely tentacle directed the powder from the basin along the ribbed channel towards some receiver that was hidden from me by the mound of bluish dust. From this unseen receiver, a little thread of green smoke rose vertically into the quiet air. As I looked, the handling machine, with a faint and musical clinking, extended, telescopic fashion, a tentacle that had been a moment before a mere blunt projection, until its end was hidden behind the mound of clay. In another second, it had lifted a bar of white aluminium into sight. Wait, aluminium mining? In Woking? What are they up to? Those sneaky cephalopods? Those naughty interplanetary octopi? Those, uh, those bastard squid? Yeah, you nailed that, mate. At the risk of sounding like a Tom Waits soundbite. What's he building in there? Like, what is this? The Martians were already prepared to land and get some minerals out of our dirt. Like they had a landscaping plan in place. What are they going to do? Put a water fountain to go in with the quarries and the red gardens? I thought I'd take a minute outside of the book proper to have a little deep dive into where HG Wells might have got the idea of them changing the land, you know? Messing around with it. Why an invading force would, would do that and try and take things away from the ground? And also, why they're cultivating some unexpected red weed with it? Because I don't know about you guys, but when I first read about the red weed, I thought like, oh man, these guys are like terraforming Earth. They're terraforming for Mars. Oh, that's a scientific thing that HG Wells would like to write about. Which is that idea of like uh, putting plants from your own planet onto another onto another planet that you're visiting to to try and make it habitable for humans to live on. They do it in The Martian. You know, the film with Matt Damon. He makes potatoes. He's in his own poo. He has a great time. What's not to like? Ooh, potatoes. I then decided to go off to research terraforming, and it turns out that terraforming is only about forming something into terra, or earth. Who would have thought that words have meanings? So what would it be, like Mars forming? I mean, it, it feels weird that there's not a word for another planet trying to make earth habitable for them, but then I guess that's not really our word then, is it? That'd be the word that they use. And I'm actually personally really against cultural appropriation because I'm a great ally. Even to Martians sucking blood out of human spines, apparently. So anyway, what gives with the red weed? What's with all this aluminium? Well, put on your waders, because we're going on a squelch through the swampy marshes of setting up extraterrestrial shops. I'm talking about how Imperial colonialism tackled their newfound lands. I mean, they weren't actually newfound. They'd been around for hundreds of thousands of years with civilization there. It was just that the colonists came along. How on earth could we get an idea to expect another intelligent creature to act when invading our planet than how we treat other intelligent creatures outside of our country when we invade them? And often inside our own country. Hooray! More colonialism talk! You're welcome. Thank you. Please stop clapping. Look, we're going to have a see how the British Empire approaches newfound lands, as that's largely what H.G. Wells would have had to either completely contrast or compare to. Alright? To quote Inez Sutton's colonial agricultural policy, one of the main functions of colonialism is to supply raw materials, especially those exotic, to Europe. That could be gold, ivory, diamonds, sugar, 
wherever you could grab yourself or buy off someone else. Often the purpose of a colonial endeavour was to set up somewhere that you could then start taking stuff to bring back to the motherland. Want a steady supply of ivory? Set up on the Ivory Coast. Want a fresh cook every week? Hello, Cook Island! Of course, this is a massive reduction in explanation for what the point of Britain, or any colonial power, does going out and taking over a country. Like, every area was governed differently, and largely, according to Lebius R. Wilfley in his 1900 paper, How Great Britain Governs Her Colonies, the government style was based on whether the population within that area was largely white folk that had travelled over, or a population which in his words was a low type of civilization. I'm going to uh, go ahead and press the racism alarm there. It all gets very complicated, which you can tell by the fact that there are roles within each type of colony, such as viceroy, and councils described as executive. It's almost as if they deliberately set up a complex, large bureaucratic body made up of lots of smaller gatekeeping organizations to make it harder for those outside of it to understand and challenge it. But that couldn't possibly have been the situation and definitely isn't something we still experience now. That's how they'd organise themselves once they were there, but when it comes to the actual treatment of the land, it's actually a little bit similar to what the Martians are doing. Metals, jewels, sugar, it's all stuff you can flog and get a better return on investment than Beanie Babies at a car boot sale. However, with all of these, it's all about scale. Working the numbers, setting up the deal, cashing out. BritishEmpire.co.uk has a great bit of information and detail on what these things are, which are referred to as plantations. Now, you've probably heard about plantations from when a Hollywood star apologises for having a wedding at one, despite having easy access to Google the history of that venue. It's firstly worth mentioning that any crops made from a plantation were all very labour-intensive, so if they could get their hands on slaves, that would really help keep those pesky employee costs down. So the first thing that a lot of these places would have is humans captured and brought over to do work that was either too expensive or intensive, the two ifs, for a paid workforce to do. Harvesting things like sugarcane required people with machetes to hack them down over and over again with a workday that could be 18 hours a day. And that's a lot of toil. You know, time off in lieu. Only joking. They wouldn't get toil. They'd be lucky if they weren't flogged. There were two waves to the type of crop produced by plantations. First was cotton, sugar and tobacco. Second was coffee, rubber and tea. These were all crops that require a particular climate or soil to produce. And oftentimes, a potential plantation owner would literally and metaphorically plow through a whole load of different crops into their newly claimed land to see if any of the money money crops would grow. If it did, the area would become singularly dedicated to producing it. Now, what the Martians are doing looks a little similar to our mining efforts. You know, what with them digging in the ground for stuff. This could potentially be another nod from Herbie G to the similarities between the Martians' invasion of England and the British colonisation of South Africa. Throughout the 1800s, Africa was seen as the big place for precious metals. Sure, Britain had coal, but Africa was a land filled with gold and jewels. As famous jewellery expert Gollum would say, As someone who grew up and lives in the north of England, it's a part of our local history to know that mining is both a big business and also a wildly dangerous one. I mean, even now! In 2006, there was a collapse in Australia that trapped some guys down there. You might remember Dave Grohl wrote a song about it. Just this year as I was writing this, there was a collapse that trapped some miners in China. I can't wait to see what Dave Grohl does for them. So with modern technology and modern safety standards, it's still bad and dangerous. And it's not just the price in blood they're paying, it's also the toll it's taken on the environment. There's an island between Australia and Hawaii called Nauru, 
measuring 22 kilometers squared that in 1900 was discovered to have massive phosphate reserves. That's a chemical you can use for making fertilizers for farming and stuff. Between its discovery and by 1968, 80% of the land was strip mined by Germans, then British, and then the island population, leaving giant craters across the island. You can look it up on Google Maps if you want, it's really visible. I mean, live your life however you want. Don't worry, there is a happy ending for the island of Nauru, as whilst there's little to no natural resources there, it's expensive and difficult to import things in, and its only possible industry has died out because it was mined, mined senselessly out of existence. It's now getting support from the Australian government, and in return being used as a... Uh, let me just check... Detainment facility for refugees seeking protection in Australia. Right, that doesn't... That sounds awful. So, there's a bit of reflection on the Martians exploiting our land and digging it up with little care for the environment. Although, to be fair, they're not actually making the enslaved humans do it, so maybe that's not as bad? I I'm, just, I'm just saying, like, if Colonial Britain was cooking a pizza at 180 degrees in the oven, they're maybe cooking it at, like, 120, 150? Like, you're both making a pizza, but one of them's gonna take longer. And has less slave. So just bear that in mind. The second part of this deep dive is this red weed, like, did they mean to bring it over? The fact it's called a weed, sort of, by definition, means that it was unplanned. You know, like, we know that Martians had the ability to pick stuff up and move it around if they wanted to, you know, they can stand up in our atmosphere, just about, and they can definitely stand up over there, according to HG Wells, and you know what? Hey, we brought over stuff to places that didn't want it too. There are loads of examples of colonists uh, accidentally mucking around with local environments. You know, like cane toads in Australia, grey squirrels in the UK, even a, a, a green crab somewhere? Like, all over the world apparently? I don't know. Of course, introducing animals and plants into an environment is bad, but worse I'd say is bringing disease. You know, like at a dinner party, if someone brought a pet as a gift, it's a bit of a pain in the ass. But if someone brings typhoid, that's really gonna ruin the atmosphere. And guess what? Colonists did that too! Probably most devastatingly in America. Whilst there's no way of knowing the actual number of deaths, a study in 2018 found that an estimated 55 million people died of disease following the European conquest of the Americas starting in 1492. Whilst Columbus thought he had landed in India, he definitely didn't know he'd be giving the welcoming gift of smallpox. In its tour through the continent, it's now believed more of the indigenous population were victims of this unconscious biological warfare than the actual warfare that took place afterwards. So again, I mean, the Martians' red weed isn't ideal, but I'd take it over smallpox. I mean, I'm not sure why they're my only options, but look, we play with the hand we're given, not the deck we want. I wonder if the Martians will bring any biological implications like that. Who's to say? It's not like any of you listening have any foreknowledge of what's to come through the multitude of adaptations or even reading the book ahead of the podcast. Let's get back into it and find out. Untarnished as yet, and shining dazzlingly, and deposited it in a growing stack of bars that stood at the side of the pit. Between sunset and starlight, this dexterous machine must have made more than a hundred such bars out of the crude clay, and the mound of bluish dust rose steadily until it topped the side of the pit. The contrast between the swift and complex movements of these contrivances and the inert panting clumsiness of their masters was acute, and for days I had to tell myself repeatedly that these latter were indeed the living of the two things. 
The curate had possession of the slit when the first men were brought to the pit. I was sitting below, huddled up, listening with all my ears. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that that's two, because he's not told us anything else. And if it's more than two, you would have thought you'd have brought that up at some point. Like just, oh hey, I'm the narrator, Martians have arrived, oh by the way I've got three ears. He made a sudden movement backward, and I, fearful that we were observed, crouched in a spasm of terror. He came sliding down the rubbish and crept beside me in the darkness, inarticulate, gesticulating. And for a moment I shared his panic. Nice of you to share something with him, you big bloody peephog. His gesture suggested a resignation of the slit, and after a little while my curiosity gave me courage, and I rose up, stepped across him and clambered up to it. At first I could see no reason for his frantic behaviour. The twilight had now come, the stars were little and faint, but the pit was illuminated by the flickering green fire that came from the aluminium make. The whole picture was a flickering scheme of green gleams and shifting rusty black shadows, strangely trying to the eyes. Over and through it all went the bats, heeding it not at all. The sprawling Martians were no longer to be seen. The mound of blue-green powder had risen to cover them from sight, and a fighting machine, with its, leg con with its legs contracted, crumpled and abbreviated, stood across the corner of the pit. And then, amid the clangour of the machinery, came a drifting suspicion of human voices, that I entertained at first only to dismiss. Come on in, come on in everyone. Okay, you in? Now piss off! I crouched, watching this fighting machine closely, satisfying myself now, for the first time, that the hood did indeed contain a Martian. As the green flames lifted, I could see the oily gleam of its integument and the brightness of its eyes, and suddenly I heard a yell and saw a long tentacle reaching over the shoulder of the machine to the little cage that hunched upon its back. Then something, something struggling violently, was lifted high against the sky, a black, vague enigma against the starlight. And as this black object came down again, I saw by the green brightness that it was a man. For an instant he was clearly visible. He was a stout, ruddy, middle-aged man, well-dressed. Three days before he must have been walking the world, a man of considerable consequence. I could see his staring eyes and the gleams of light on his studs and watch chain. He vanished behind the mound, and for a moment there was silence. And then began a shrieking and a sustained and cheerful hooting from the Martians. I mean, that sounds a bit bleak, but on the positive note, it does, it does sound, you know, the Martians just hooting and cheering. It's, it sounds like a bunch of owls having a very nice buffet, so, you know, picture that in your head, you got that? Yeah, yeah, it's cheered you up a bit, maybe? If not, why are you made of stone? Owls on a buffet, they're having a great time! Imagine it! With their big weird long legs and their funny round faces. Having a hoot. I slid down the rubbish, struggled to my feet, clapped my hands over my ears, and bolted into the scullery. The curate, who had been crouching silently with his arms over his head, looked up as I passed, cried out quite loudly at my desertion of him, and came running after me. That night, as we lurked in the scullery, balanced between our horror and the terrible fascination this peeping had, although I felt an urgent need of action, I tried in vain to conceive some plan of escape. I tried in vain to conceive some plan of escape. But afterwards, during the second day, I was able to consider our position with great clearness. 
I mean, nothing helps clear your head like a good peep. That's the saying, isn't it? If, you, if you're about to panic, just have a little peep. The curate, I found, was quite incapable of discussion. This new and culminating atrocity had robbed him of all vestiges of reason or forethought. I mean, I feel like he's saying this as if it's like a shock and this is terrible, but at what point ahead of this, what experience or evidence has he got to suggest that this isn't 100% exactly how the curate's going to respond to something? You know what I mean? Like, oh, he just saw a man get off a boat when they first met. The curate's having a mare. They get to a town where there's like a like a, a safety to shelter in and, and not no Martian in sight. The guy's panicking. They're stuck in a, in a scullery that's still safe nonetheless and they've got food. He's having a nightmare. Practically, he had already sunk to the level of an animal. But as the saying goes, I gripped myself with both hands. It grew upon my mind, once I could face the facts, that terrible as our position was, there was as yet no justification for absolute despair. Our chief chance lay in the possibility of the Martians making the pit nothing more than a temporary encampment. Or even if they kept it permanently, they might not consider it necessary to guard it, and a chance of escape might be afforded us. I also weighed very carefully the possibility of our digging a way out in a direction away from the pit. But the chances of our emerging within sight of some sentinel fighting machine seemed at first too great. And I should have to and I should have to do all the digging myself. The curate would certainly have failed me. It was on the third day, if my memory serves me right, that I saw the lad killed. Don't don't worry, it's not you. It's not you explaining lad. It's just a lad. Yeah, it's just a lad. Um, okay. Don't worry, you're fine. Scary. I know, I know. It was the only occasion on which I actually saw the Martians feed. After that experience, I avoided the hole in the wall for the better part of a day. I went into the scullery, removed the door, and spent some hours digging with my hatchet as silently as possible. But when I had made a hole about a couple of feet deep, the loose earth collapsed noisily, and I did not dare continue. I lost heart, and lay down on the scullery floor for a long time, having no spirit even to move. And after that, I abandoned altogether the idea of escaping excavation. Well, it's just as the old saying goes. If at first you don't succeed, abandon altogether the idea of escaping by excavation. It says much for the impression of the Martians had made upon me that at first I entertained little or no hope of our escape being brought about by their overthrow through any human effort. But on the fourth or fifth night, I heard a sound like heavy guns. It was very late in the night and the moon was shining brightly. The Martians had taken away the excavating machine, and, save for a fighting machine that stood in the remoter bank of the pit, and a handling machine that was buried out of my sight in the corner of the pit immediately beneath my peephole, the place was deserted by them. Except for the pale glow from the handling machine and the bars and patches of white moonlight, the pit was in darkness. And, except for the clinking of the handling machine, quite still, that night was a beautiful serenity. Save for one planet, the moon seemed to have the sky to herself. I heard a dog howling. And that familiar sound it was that made me listen. Then I heard quite distinctly a booming exactly like the sound of great guns. Six, six distinct reports I counted. And after a long interval, six again. And that was all.
Oh, what an ominously peaceful ending. But, I mean, we got some good, meaty Martian action there, right? I mean, a little less of the violence, but a little more tinkering. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm a big fan of a tinker. I like to see, uh, I like to see what people are pottering around doing. Uh, and I think that's, that's something that a lot of sci-fi films and adaptations forget, is just uh, making sure that you've got a little bit of time to have your invaders just have a have a little bit of a muck around, you know? Just have a have a have a faff. Very rarely is it, you know, like in signs you don't see him putting the washing machine on or anything, do you? I mean the water would be sorry, spoilers, but the water would be a problem for that. I hope you've enjoyed the episode, and if you have, please do subscribe, review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, except Spotify, because and I cannot stress this enough, they do not let you review, which is very frustrating, so you'll have to go somewhere else. If you wish to go somewhere else, why not talk about it on the social media? I'm at E-D-Y-H-U-R-S-T on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It means the world to me. Just let me know you're listening in this, uh, even if you're a Martian, just uh, get in touch with me. Uh, you could even send me an email, eddiehurst at gmail.com, if you want. Uh, although I'd, I'd rather it be in a much more public forum so more people can see it and, and, and get on board with the podcast. Anyway, like I said, I'm also in the Musical Comedy Awards September 18th at the Phoenix Arts Club. Uh, so come on down if you want to see me perform some of my silly, some of my s- silly little songs live. I'll be there. Thank you again to Jason Cook for doing the background music. Today, in fact, of the day of listening, if you're in Manchester, you can go and see him. He'll be at the back of the uh, back of the comedy balloon, which is the night that he runs. Other than that, guys, I'll see you in a couple more weeks for chapter four. Are you kidding me? Sorry, that's my. I'm recording in a slightly different area. I've got my dog sneezing. I'll, I'll send a photo out of him. Uh, let me hold on. Let's take a photo. I'm sure somebody would like to see that. Next chapter is chapter four, Death of the Curate. I wonder what's going to happen there. Bloody hell. Bit of a spoiler. Flag that up, HG. Anyway, guys, I'll see you then for chapter four. Bye! <laughs>